Welcome to another episode of Junior Achievement of South Florida's Recipe for Success. Just as there are no two recipes that contain the exact same ingredients or measurements, there are no two success stories exactly the same. Recipe for Success features entrepreneurs, visionary leaders, and innovators of all ages who will share the ingredients that make them successful. Here's your host, Lori Salarulo, President and CEO of Junior Achievement of South Florida. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of Recipe for Success brought to you by Junior Achievement of South Florida. I'm Laurie Salarulo, the host of our show. And uh, if you've been watching any of our episodes, you know that uh, we take uh, such great pride in bringing you leaders and entrepreneurs who share their stories and share the ingredients to their recipe for success. Um, most of you know that that is our mission. Our mission is to create uh, future entrepreneurs, uh, leaders, managers, create careers, successful careers for young people. And so this is one way that we can share these stories, not only with you, but with our students. And so I'm really happy to have uh, a guest with us this morning who I just love what he does. And in today's world, uh, so relevant, but he was definitely way ahead of the curve, I think. Uh, Zach Morrison, who I'm also happy to say is one of our JA board members, the founder of Tenuti, um, who is a digital agency. And so I am going to bring Zach into our little world. Whoop. Did I get you? There I am. There you are. How are you? Good morning. I'm uh, I'm doing well, all things considered. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Uh, it's good. I mean, I got to see you two days in a row, and and I I do have to say that I it all of these Zoom calls and and team meetings and all of that it, it can be a bit overwhelming because I I always used to think my day was so packed with meetings, but in between I didn't always appreciate the time that I had in the car right, to kind of come down from that meeting and then get ready for the next meeting. And now I don't have that because it's back-to-back meeting. So, um, so I mean, it's good. It's productive, but I uh, need a little breathing space there. So, Yeah, I got to establish a, a new routine. Exactly. So would you, for our audience, because I know that I had never heard of Tenuti until I met you, uh, would you share uh, with our audience a little bit about the company um, you know, the short story of how you founded it, why you founded it, and uh, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, we like to consider ourselves one of the best kept secrets in our space, but one day we like we would hope to be uh, maybe not the best kept secret in a, in a household name, but that's going to take a, a little while. Uh, so Tenuity, it, you know, is we are the largest independent um, performance marketing agency across the triopoly. And what the triopoly is, is Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Now, what that means even detailed is we do digital marketing and digital advertising. So we manage over $1.5 billion a year in media and advertising across those three platforms, across Google ads, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, advertisements on Amazon, uh, and much more as well beyond that. We have over 650 employees now um, across wow. 10 offices in the U.S., but we also have a considerable uh, remote culture and dispersed workforce. So we actually have, of our 650 people, over 150 
that are actually more than 50 miles from one of those uh, one of those 10 offices. And really, wow. that's just one core tenant of the business um, that all relates back to uh, the culture that we've built at the agency. And you know, being uh, you know, looking at our, our business, we we define our success. Uh, by the satisfaction of our employees first and foremost, and our clients as well. So I'm, yeah. I'm happy. I'm happy to tell a little bit of the story about how this whole uh, crazy venture got to where it is, if you'd like. Yes, I would love that. Yeah. So in, uh, I, I'll kind of add some personal anecdotes to it. So in, uh, I was always. Uh, I don't want to say entrepreneur because I was young. I was always a hustler. I'll call it. I always had something going on. I always had a side gig, a, you know, a business, selling something, trying to make a buck as a kid, no matter what. Uh, and in 2004, I was in college, uh, you know, and uh, trying to figure out what, honestly, my, you know, what true business I was going to start. Um, and I happened through a friend of a friend to meet a gentleman named Ben Kirshner who was actually the first person to ever sell coffee on the internet. Uh, and he got really good at selling coffee on the internet through the early days of Google. And a lot of people started asking him for his advice on how to do this. Uh, so he realized, why would I give away my knowledge for free? Uh, so he learned about what an agency was, what a marketing agency was, not really having any experience in that space and decided to start an agency. And quickly through his research, he learned about the terrible stigma that Madison Avenue had around agencies, right? Around working people to the core, you know, not treating people yes, very well. I was well. one of them. I was yeah. one of them. I worked on Madison Avenue for Ogilvy and Maydock. I know that. <laughs> okay. So our so I will tell you that the investment, the thesis of our business is to do it the opposite of the world that you worked in, partially due to our research and partially due to our naiveness. So that was 04. He saw that, kind of left that world and started his own agency. And that agency's name was Elite SEM. And in 2004, I'm still in college. So Ben was the main founder. And then him and I got introduced. I knew I wanted to be in New York, but I didn't know, I didn't have my, my entrepreneurial venture yet. And he said, look, I'm not really ready to hire people 100%. So why don't you come work for me for part of the time? And then the other part of the time, you can do whatever, do your own side business. I was like, so that's perfect. So actually, I like to call myself a founding member and maybe a partnerpreneur because he was really the original visionary and the entrepreneur. But it was really myself, him, and only a few other people at this time. And, and it was under the name uh, Elite SEM. And we were focused on just Google advertising because this is 2004. Right. Uh, and really, the, our goal at this point was to do it the opposite of Ogilvy. Right at Ogilvy in these places. Now, look, there's plenty of other good agencies out there, but our concept was well, wait, businesses and executives, they don't keep clients, they don't make clients happy as an agency grow. The people do. So if we're if that's if that's what's wrong with other agencies, then let's start this thing the opposite. So we came up with this idea of entrepreneurship. We wanted entrepreneurs within our organization. We wanted to have a culture of ownership. So we wanted to hire people that would feel a sense of ownership over the work they did and on the clients they did. So when a client asked me about our business, I say, look, my number one most important thing, my the thing I put first is our employees. And some of them will look at me in just complete shock and be like, what do you mean? Clients aren't first, you're an agency. No, our people are first. And by putting our people first, by putting people first, it means 
paying them well, treating them like owners of the business, recognition, training, education, all those things. I tell clients, guess what? They're going to put you first because everything in their world, their recognition, their pay, everything for them has to do with you. So they're going to put, put you first. So that was like the original thesis. So Google advertising and a great culture. Now the world has dramatically changed since 2004 when we first started this. Other things, Facebook has come in and social advertising, and, you know, the, the emergence of Amazon and marketplaces, which also have an advertising. So our world has really evolved uh, since then to adopt all of those channels. Uh, so, you know, today we work with businesses, uh, everything from Etsy, Elf Cosmetics, Kerrig, the K-Cups, Kraft Heinz, Terminex, Tommy Bahama, Eddie Bauer, uh, and Advil, a variety of other businesses today, um, and helping them with their performance marketing. So, you know, we're, we're really proud of the clients that we work with and the brands that we have, but we're also really proud of the, you know, the culture that we've built and sustained over time. Yeah, that's that's a great story. Um, you know, it's it's basically entrepreneurs, right, are filling a need, and you saw a need for a different model, right, and different type of workplace, and you filled it. So this transition that everybody else is going through today to remote working, you were already there. So this was yeah. there was no change for you. It was business as usual. Yeah, I mean, it's. And when we shut down our offices, people are upset, maybe more from like a social perspective, but this like has not changed our, you know, our business. Well, I mean, we were one of the original customers of zoom. We actually tried five video conferencing platforms like five years ago before even zoom existed because this has been part of our business. Now I mentioned the business started as a lead SEM today. It's Tenuity. We rebranded the agency actually a year ago partially because we have acquired three other agencies. So actually our disbursement of our workforce has even got even greater, but doing acquisitions, dealing with a global pandemic, working from home, while we're all dealing with the stress and anxiety that comes with it, it hasn't really changed our business model. We don't get to see our clients or our colleagues as often in person, but business yeah. as usual. Yeah, I'll bet, you know, when I came to your office, I know there was lunches out for, for everyone. And I think you said you, you bring in lunch several times. I'll bet that's the stuff they're missing, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, the interesting thing is I think, you know, one of the things I'm just, I would say in awe of our employees over is obviously during this time, you know, while our business is in the right sector, we're in digital and e-commerce, we're not immune uh, from the challenges that come from this time. And I've just been all of our employees. Obviously, we've had to change perks, remove perks, and those types of things. Some are just not even possible. Yeah, we used to have caterers in the office. We, we can't cater to their houses. Um, so, you know, I've just been in awe of their, you know, people's just total understanding of this and just gratefulness. And I think a lot of it has to do with we've always been transparent with our employees. And we tell them everything. You know, I mean, we get down to the detail of telling our uh, our, every employee at our company gets to see the PL. Every employee we tell on a weekly basis whether we're collecting money or not. They're owners in the business. They all have equity. So, you know, they understood when we had to make those changes. Yeah, I love that equity model. I've often thought about how to do that in our business, but it's kind of hard to do that with a nonprofit <laughs> since yeah. we can make the profits. But, um, but it's creating, I love when you said about entrepreneur. Uh, entrepreneurship, because that's exactly what 
I know for me at, at Junior Achievement has been one of the things that was, has been so important to me to creating that kind of culture. It's a mindset, right? I really do believe, you know, people will say to us, oh, you're teaching all these kids entrepreneurship. Well, well maybe they don't all want to become entrepreneurs. I said, I'm okay with that. But when they work for someone, they will understand what it feels like to run a company, to own it, right? And have that mindset that versus an employee mindset, which is I go to work, I do my job and I go home. And it's very different. And I think that's part of that culture. And um, I think you mentioned uh, that you've actually won several awards for your culture. Yeah. So uh, I would say the one that we're probably most proud of, eh, there's a tie. So we've won Ad Age, which is the best publication, kind of the agency world, uh, best place to work two years in a row. Uh, but a, few, a year or so ago, we actually won best place to work in all of America for all types of companies for millennials from Fortune Magazine um, or Fortune.com. I don't know why I said magazine, but Fortune. Um, their brand. There you go. Uh, and, and that was amazing because, look, 95% of our probably employees are probably considered a millennial and the vast majority of of our of our industry was and when we really look back at that you know i think when i try to understand why we did it i think it has to do with the transparency i talked about but it has to do with we use this word a lot internally meritocracy right and about merit and it's not you know and and i think where businesses have struggled is that they look at just pay and these you know things as the way but but people want to be treated and compensated and recognized based off of their value that they put in, not about how long they've been there or how tenured there are, right? I mean, how many how many stories have we heard of entrepreneurs that left these big fortune, huge companies because they weren't being valued and their ideas weren't being valued, and then they go on to start these incredible businesses? By the yeah. way, the guy, the the founder of Zoom, is one of those people. He had worked at a big tech company that could have just listened to his ideas, but instead he left to start Zoom. Why? Because he wasn't recognized right, or, or compensated based off his merit and his ideas. So that's one of the things that we've always done is the value that you put in is always the value that you're going to get out. Yeah, it's funny. I did an interview for a couple of young uh, students yesterday and um, they asked me what was, you know, what was what was one thing that was important to me? And, and I was talking about inclusion, right, and empowerment, including our people and decisions. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes their, their wishes, right, or what they think might be best isn't always what we end up doing. But very often they, it is, right, because we all agree that that's the best idea. But I think that it has changed the culture to make sure that they're included in the conversations, that they're aware of what we're, we're discussing, where we're going, and all of that. And it has absolutely shifted the culture. And then once we all agree, right, they now have buy-in. So once we all agree, then they can go and you can empower them to do uh, what they need to do to get you there. If you have the right people, right? Exactly. Um, and you're right. You know, seniority and tenure doesn't always make, it can be that brand new employee who's there a year, uh, who is the one who has all those great ideas. So all of that. So I guess, you know, it's really interesting. I think about, uh, as we're going through this, I'm sure that, or I would think that you have seen an influx um, of people shopping online. And so, so I know you mentioned something the other day about the uh, highest 
uh, days for, for shopping recently. And so where do you see this going, Zach? So I think history is a great predictor of the future. And the last crisis, you know, deep crises that this uh, country has been in was in 2000, yeah, 2007 to 2009 period of the financial crisis. And then previous to that, uh, the period of 9-11. So I, I look back to the more recent one of the financial crisis. And I think my takeaway from that is what was overvalued was exposed and what was undervalued accelerated. So in that financial crisis, home prices were overvalued. Uh, but also what was overvalued was the, 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 the cost of advertising on linear television or print or out of home or all these things. It's not that I think those things are bad. I actually still to this day, you know, believe that they're an important part of a marketing or media mix, but they were way overvalued then. And at that point is when digital and e-commerce kind of really took off. Well, now let's fast forward to today. So, and I think what, what, you're, what you're seeing now is a cohort of people that didn't trust the shop online, didn't believe it, it wasn't part of their day, um, that it's gonna explode even more. We have a lot of clients that are the brands you know, and 75% of their sales still occur in a store and 25% maybe occur online. Now, I think what's gonna happen is that shift is going to occur maybe, I don't know, let's say it's gonna occur to 50-50, but what I'm talking to our clients about is, you can't, don't, don't change your business after this to prepare for 50-50. You need to prepare for the complete inverse. The people are gonna come out of this and you know, hopefully we get to back, you know, back to somewhat of a normal or a new normal, but we all know that for a very long time, you know, things are gonna change. And we also know that people got to experience what it's like in a vast way to not be able to go anywhere and shop. So it's, you know, it's my feeling is uh, retail and, you know, physical stores will be, were overvalued. They really weren't 75% of the business. People were going online and then just going into the store and buying a lot more often than people say. So I think you're gonna see a huge shift in that, you know, post, uh, post this era. Yeah, when I was talking with Andrew Koenig with City Furniture, he kind of said something very similar. People still want to go into the store sometimes, like a mattress or whatever, and experience it or see it or touch it, but they've already done all their homework online before they ever got there. Right. It goes back to my, he's making the same statement. It's about the their businesses and humans are overvaluing the store or the right. physical location and undervaluing. Remember, I'm not saying zero at all. But for the store, I'm just saying overvalued versus undervalued. And I think you're going to see a flip. People are, look, you're already seeing it even before this, where malls and, you know, other places were turning into more experience centers. Because people, yeah. if, if, if the businesses aren't going to make money if you're just going there to just get something, because people already did all their research and they're going to, that, that shift's going to continue online. So, you know, I think stores are going to need to be more about an experience than it is going to be about shopping in the future because the shopping and the research is going to be done online. Sure. Yeah. And that's why I think Toys R Us, you know, has a, um, it would have an amazing opportunity if they turn themselves into an experience center. They're gone. They're trying to make a comeback. They're gone. But if kids yeah. could go in and be, and it could have been an experience, the kids already know online what toys they want. Yeah, they can yeah. learn, but if they went, if, if they knew it was an experience and parents knew it was an experience, 
they would go there more often and buy more stuff. And that's why they failed. I always said that. Uh, coming, I, I, came, I come from New York. FAO Schwartz, right? Yeah. Was a toy store. And it was an experience, right? The big gumball machine coming down in the middle and the big piano steps that you could play on. And so it was, I, I definitely hear you. Even back then, they got it. Right, where it's yeah. But then, yeah, then, and they didn't evolve enough, and they, you know, yeah, they, they had the idea, but you know, got to keep taking it. I mean, you see things out there, this museum of ice cream and all this other stuff. They're turning it's those things are stores because what do you do at the end of Disney World or any place you go? At the end, you get off a ride, you get out of an experience. What's there? A store to buy something. So yeah. it's the inverse is where these brands need to go. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, it's interesting because I think, and I don't know if it's my imagination, um, but it feels like over the last six weeks, social media, and I try to be thoroughly active on, you know, more because of junior achievement. I don't post a lot of personal stuff um, on LinkedIn and, and Facebook and Instagram, and that's about all I can handle. Um, but it feels like those, those, um, platforms are so overloaded right now. Like there's so much content um, and something that, you know, I would see someone who would post great stuff and they would have, you know, thousands of views right on a post that they would do. And now you see maybe that same type of post would get maybe two or 300 views. And it just feels like there's so much content uh, do you think so with ads, right? Google ads, Facebook ads, and and um, Instagram and and all that. Do you think we'll get? Will there be a point of saturation? So there, there always. So I kind of put Google in its own bucket, right? And and Amazon in their own because that's intent based, right? Where people are going in and they're asking for something, you're searching something. So for them, no, not necessarily. Now, on this, for your question around social, um, there already has been saturation, and that's why Instagram stories became a thing, right? I mean, yes, they copied it from Snapchat, but the reason they did was they needed a new form of, of a way that people consume and not just consume in Facebook in the feed. Then it went to Instagram, then into stories. Now you're seeing Instagram TV. So I think like every great company, these social platforms will continue to innovate in order to make uh, one, they're advertising native that people just kind of expect it and they're okay with it. And two, uh, they'll do a great job of, you know, coming up with new platforms, you know, new mediums to serve ads that will be less saturated, but also three, the ones that don't, you know, look, Snapchat, TikTok, these types, you know, there will always be disruptors and innovators. Uh, I mean, look, Snapchat is probably one of the most innovative companies out there. Not, and, I, and it's not mass mainstream right now. The problem with some of their innovation is that they haven't built a moat around it. That some of the innovation that they built has very easy, been very easy for the Instagrams of the world to, to copy. Um, mm. But, hey, that's a, that's a company I bet on. Because anybody who's innovating, they'll eventually get their moat right. Yeah, that makes sense. So the one question that I, uh, we did get your recipe, by the way, for the cookbook. And so um, I'm, I, by the way, I'm loving it because I'm trying some of the recipes that some of our guests are giving us. Kim Swears gave me an amazing recipe for short ribs. 
the other day. So I pulled out my slow cooker and I'm making short ribs this week. Um, but I think the one thing I always ask everyone at wow. the end is, what is your main ingredient in your recipe for success? Big me. Hold on, honey. My producer always has to make an appearance. So I promise okay. to that in one second, buddy. So what is the main ingredient to your recipe? So, man, I've been sitting on this question since you invited me to be on the show and trying to figure out how I'm going to answer it. Because I get a question in this way, shape or form a lot because I was fairly young when, you know, kind of we got started and still believe I am a little young. Um, there's this concept of nature and nurture that, you know, I think everybody thinks about. So nature being one of the things that, you know, could be part of your ingredients. So I can never answer a question for, you know, exactly the way you asked. So I look at my ingredients in two parts. When I ask people, sometimes I get three. Right. Okay. So I'm going to do that. So, all right. So I look at my, my ingredient has two parts, right? You got the wet and dry ingredients or, you know, and baking, whatever you want to call it. So here are my two. I think you have nature and you have nurture. I think some people like to say that, are you nature or nurture? Do you think your success is because of something inherent inside you or because other things help? I think it's nonsense. Every successful person is both. So my main ingredients, I would say, is both nature and nurture, just like everybody is. And I would say from the nature you know, perspective, I just have always believed to have kind of a, a work ethic and a self-awareness that I think was kind of built instilled in me from my parents, both who worked hard, both who understood their strengths really well and focused on that. And then look from the nurture side, I just had amazing mentors and coaches and not one. You know, I mentioned Ben, but Ben's not the only one I've, you know, there's a gentleman named Cameron Harold, Matt, you know, Matt Cutler, there's friends, colleagues, I have so many mentors. Um, so I appreciate you letting, letting me give two answers that it's nature and nurture. But I would say if I had to give one overarching one, I actually thought about it. It's the ingredient is a chip on my shoulder. I've always had a chip on my shoulder. Um, I was never an A student. I was never, I never really, frankly, believed much in how the education system works. It's part of the reason why I love junior achievement so much is because I walked in, I'm like, oh, this is real life. I wrote my capstone paper in college on how college doesn't prepare you for the real world. And the, and the teacher only passed me because she never wanted to see me again. Um, <laughs> But it was because it, you know, so this chip on my shoulder that, you know, I knew that it did, you know, that grades and honors classes and SAT scores was going to have no bearing on my professional success and my success in life. It was going to be about me as a person and my work ethic. So, yeah, I've always just carried that chip on my shoulder that uh, the college counselor that worked at my school who, uh, you know, told me every college was a stretch and kind of, you know, never really, you know, believed in me or any of those things. And now, you know, I kind of like to make sure I get information fed back to that woman of my success. So it's always been that chip <laughs> on my shoulder. Payback, so you know what. But, yeah, um, yeah you know what, I think um, that's why I think I, um, I admired you from the time I met you because that was me. I mean, it was like, don't make me sit in these classrooms and listen to someone talk to me up there who's either never done it right or it's just talking to me and i'm not getting to experience it and so i um left college with 18 credits to finish my dad was a dean of students of a college in new york my mom was the superintendent of schools so this didn't go over really big but 
Um, and I had always worked three, four jobs at a time and went to school. And I loved working because that's where I got to develop my skills and really learn, like you said, from other people. Not that there isn't some value to classroom, but yeah. I think the way it's formatted, I agree with you. And that's why I love junior achievement because I do think that for those students who are not going to go off to be a doctor or a lawyer, right? That's, they're more like us and yeah. they need to experience it. Um, and I ended up going back and finishing my 18 credits to make my dad happy more so. Um, and also because I knew if I left Ogilvy, I would need to have that piece of paper, even though I was a vice president, I knew I'd have to have that if I wanted to leave. So I, it was I have a very, very similar story. Very similar right. story. I, I, but it, it was a little, you know, different era. So I actually planned to to not fit to not finish, and and because I we started this when I was going into my senior year in college. I said, hey, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go back. But technology, not as good as it is now. You still there was still cell phones at this time, and there were still laptops that I was able to, you know, uh, fulfill my commitment to my parents and to college, and. Uh, and and begin my uh, agency career. So very similar yeah. story, just a different time, right? Yep. And you know, it's interesting. I think one of the things that I'm watching with our kids right now that are having to finish out school virtually, right? Um, there are school systems, there are private schools who are prepared and are doing virtual teaching. So they're using Zoom and they're using team meetings and they're using technology to bring the teaching alive. And so there's interaction, right, between the teacher and the student, between all of the students. There's still that bit of social peace because they can see each other, they can talk to each other. Here in Broward, we have not gotten there yet. It is static learning. And I can tell you that if that were me and I were that age, this would be bad because I would not do well with static learning. It's oh, that interaction. I, mean, I agree. Yeah, I mean, look, my son's school has has Zoom. Now, granted, he's six, but my son is very much like me and thrives in a social environment. And that's when he does his best, you know, kind of best thinking and best work. So even on Zoom, like, yeah, it's better than nothing, but like, it, you know, and he gets some interaction. But so uh, I think there is, it's great that there's technology for this, but I also, the part of school that I think is the most beneficial is, the social part and being, you know, being around others and different types of people and learning from them. So yeah. hopefully we can We're get them all back to school soon. Classroom alive, right? Bringing the classroom alive to make it feel like more like the real world. And and you're right. And so bringing people like you into the classrooms through junior achievement, you know, I applaud the school district for that mandate um, and seeing that it was something that an agency outside of themselves could bring so that they could focus on the academic piece. So it's a great partnership. And I know that they're working on Zoom and, and, and those things, um, especially now that the kids are not going to be going back. But this was so amazing. I love your world because that's what I, you know, spent a lot of my corporate days in. And so I love all of this. I love our innovation and our talks about how to use this world uh, as a nonprofit because I do think there are opportunities so I just want to say thank you uh, for being a part of Junior Achievement. Thank you for sharing uh, your story and uh, such great information about this. And I think...
these are not, you know, working with somebody like you today, um, I'm not sure where they're going to go and how they're going to evolve. So I would encourage them to reach out to you. And thanks for sharing your ingredients. And I love the chip on the shoulder. Nobody else has said that one. So, um, so thank you. And I will, I know I'll be talking to you in the next couple of weeks. Um, and just take care of yourself and your family. You too. Appreciate you having me. Appreciate the kind words as well. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.